0: True confession, I really don't like pruning at all. Uh, But it's not the manual labor that I actually usually enjoy. But often when I approach our fruit trees at the start of summer or our grapevines in the dead of winter, I find myself dreading each decision to cut. Other members of my household possess little of this dread. Sometimes I'll come home and find, say, uh, the sages in our front yard, nothing more than small sticks pointing out of the ground. But somehow, at the next season, the sages are once again a vibrant green, and they burst with brilliant orange blossoms. But of course, overpruning is possible, and I'm afraid of that because you can, you can cut back a plant to such a degree that it just can't respond and I just don't want to do that. But I think that at the root of my dis-ease is the fear that somehow the cuts I make will mean less. That they will result in less fruit because I can see those branches in front of me and I can I can and see those buds that will bring new growth. Now, how can I trust that all of them will actually survive? And so if one bud is good, then certainly four or five must be better, which of course it's not, especially with wine grapes, which... Jesus is likely talking about in our gospel. Human beings have spent thousands of years cultivating the wild grape into a plant that we can quite literally bend to our will. And one of the cardinal rules of a vineyard is that if you have a multitude of branches, a multitude of shoots coming up from the vine... That the fruit of your grapevine will suffer. In this case, more is not better. That's why, in many ways, this just, I don't know, it just feels counterintuitive to me. Like cutting away part of the plant will actually aid its capacity. And yet it's true. Intentional, judicious pruning is essential to bearing good fruit. I just find it hard to trust. Some of you may know that I try to avoid preaching about love, which may seem odd for a Christian preacher. It's not that I don't like love. In fact, I love love. I think it's like the best thing ever. I actually believe that love is the hidden force that propels us through this thing we call life. But I've found that over the years, preaching about love often falls flat. It's like you're walking a knife's edge with the valley of trite, on one side and the saccharine cliffs on the other. We have so many understandings of what love is and I'd like to offer some praise to the Greeks for their four ways to love that we don't have in our English language. I just feel like you can use a whole lot of words about love and say little to nothing at all. And so all that said, I was not intending to preach about love this week until I was caught, stopped, seized by a portion of the first letter of John that we heard earlier. Chapter 4, verse 18 reads like this. There is no fear in love, but perfect love Casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Now, I also take some issue with the word perfect and its cousin, perfection. Because in general, I don't find that the translation of the Greek teleo as perfection to be very helpful. When I think of perfection, I think of uh, something that is without flaw. And I have found that striving for a life completely without flaw is a recipe for self-hatred and significant disappointment. But I don't believe that's what the author is hoping for us. Now, whenever you read the word perfect in the New Testament, this is what I want you to hear. Completeness. Something that is full of its purpose. To carry something through to its completeness. Wanting for nothing. This is a different understanding. And so, when our scriptures point us towards perfection in love, they are not assuming that no mistakes will be made. No, the the revelation that this Christian community received is that when we are full of love, when we are brimming with love, when we are not wanting with love, we cast out fear. And that, my friends, is a, is a truth that has and is and will change the world. But in my personal experience, it is really hard to do. Why? Well, I think we hear part of the reason as the verse continues. Fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. I think that's what made me stop in my tracks this past week because it makes me wonder why do we punish? What is it that we fear? I suppose that as parents, we punish our children because what our child has done has us afraid for their safety or for their welfare because we fear that something worse will happen to them later if they keep this up. And we want to prevent that from happening. So we try and get their attention now so that the behavior we see won't put them in jeopardy down the road. And our punishment takes a variety of forms, of course. There's physical punishment. There's the denial of engagement or relationship, the removal of privilege. But here's something that I think we rarely do as parents, something that I know I do not do often enough with my children, which is to surface the fear that is underlying the punishment that I'm seeking to make. It's just a vulnerable act of surfacing that fear for ourselves and maybe even with our children. We also punish our partners. We punish our partners because we fear that if we don't we won't get what we need. Or that The pain, the loss, the suffering will continue. How often, though, when we turn to punish our our spouse with an action, that could be as small as a sharp word or an icy silence, how often do we stop to consider the fear that is beneath our desire to punish, to inflict some of the pain that we are feeling? Now, I want to be very clear that I deeply believe each person should be safe and whole. No one should be diminished or hurt by a loved one. And I wonder how much of our desire to punish those we love comes from our own fear that has gone unacknowledged or ignored. And this happens on a communal level as well. We punish those whom we fear. Black folks in the United States have suffered from this for over 400 years, as have the native nations of this continent and every group of immigrants who have come to these shores. Our collective fears take so many forms my ability to get a job or the possibilities that my children will have, or wanting to keep the the culture that has given my life meaning or the sense of identity that I have come to rely on. When we act from those fears, punishment is sure to follow. On the scale of a nation, the desire to punish other people is as old as probably the notion of nations. Sometimes it's the, uh, the loss of ancestral land, sometimes it's the economic upper hand, but it is easy to rally ourselves around the need to punish others so that we can at least temporarily alleviate this dis-ease of the fear within. So you can see that fear is is potent. It is all around us. It is latent in every relationship we have in every allegiance we hold. And when these fears are allowed to grow unabated, The the fears, they spread, they multiply, and they choke out the necessary space to love. So what if? This is the great question of the resurrection. What if? What if you and I, what if we made the decision over and over again... Because this is not a one-time thing. What if we looked to prune back our fears so that love could grow? What if when we recognized that fear welling up in us, the fear that leads to punishment, what if we held it out at arm's length so we could see it for what it is, a nip it in the bud? What would that look like? What would your most intimate relationships look like? What would our criminal justice system look like? Our national budget. Your household budget. I do want to say too that there are consequences in this life. I do believe that and that the actions that deform and destroy the beloved of God cannot be condoned or allowed to continue. But so often we fool ourselves into believing that our desire to punish the other is coming from a righteous place. What if? What if we were to cut everything back to the vine? In the grapevine, there's these these vines that grow up and then it branches out of that, and and you have to be connected to the source in order to grow. What if we were to cut everything back to the vine, to the love of God known in the way, the life, and the truth of the Christ, and then see what would grow? What kind of fruit would we bear? In a way, this past year has been an experience in pruning, And the forced cessation of activity because of shelter in place, for many there has been, say, a pruning back of frenzy. And the fruit that has been born for many has been reconnection with family, with friends, because we've showed up for each other. What if we continue to live like this even when we're not forced to stay at home? And for many white folk and people of color this past year, we've begun to wonder, what if we prune back our fears of who we see as an inherent danger? We're just starting to see some of the possibilities of reforming our systems of public safety so that, for instance, the first response to a young man acting incoherently in a park Isn't several police attempting to detain, arrest, and subdue him, resulting in his asphyxiation and death? But in order to do this, we will have to recognize and cast out our fears by drawing on the unending source of love. Friends, make no mistake, this call to act from love rather than from fear or punishment, it runs counter to our prevailing culture. And it might be that it always has. But if we, you and I, if we have the courage to face our fears, to see them for what they are and to cut them back, We can trust that the abundant love of God flowing through us will bear the fruit we seek.